Welcome, everybody, to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Inc. You're jumping into a conversation in progress today. This is part two of our conversation between Howard Tybal and Grant Lichtman. Now, Grant is the author of the upcoming book, Ed Journey, A Roadmap to the Future of Education, in which he chronicles his three-month solo road trip across the United States, interviewing over 600 teachers, administrators, students, parents, and trustees. The book will be available on September 2nd, and you can pre-order it today. Check the show notes for a link. If you missed part one of the conversation, head back to episode 66, then you'll be all set for part two of our conversation with Grant Lickman on the future of education. I, here I am, I, you know, I'm in, in Portland, Oregon, and, uh, you know, I live in a community that has, it has the benefit of terrific, uh, a terrific public school system. Uh, K through 12, all the way up, uh, we have really strong schools in our area. Now, if I drive about seven miles east, uh, I end up in a district that is constantly hamstrung by, you know, judging by, uh, you know, media, uh, constantly hamstrung by public policy, the inability for for major groups, including uh, the union and, uh, you know, and the the uh, political infrastructure uh, in the in the community, unable to bridge the gap. Uh, to do what they say they need to do to become innovators in education. How did your journey deal with this issue of the, the political uh, logjam that occurs in so many communities that, that we are taught, uh, I would say conditioned, uh, to believe is, you know, makes it impossible to do anything great in education in those areas? Yeah, I think, uh, so let me answer it this way, and this comes off sounding a little bit facetious, but I, but I promise it's not. Um, to a large extent, what I was looking for were the common elements of success across educational institutions, and uh, not focusing on, you know, the, the, not focusing as much on the differences as I was on the similarities. Uh, so that point A. Point B. Uh, I uh, am not naive. I'm pragmatist, and we recognize that there have and always have been extremely powerful uh, forces buffeting. Uh, any educational institution, those forces are more powerful uh, in the public sector than they are in the private or charter school sector. I don't have a solution uh, for all uh, that, that would fit all districts or all schools. I think what I am hoping to contribute in terms of the conversation are models and opportunities for uh, schools and school leaders to recognize where others who could have been facing or have in the past faced similar obstacles have found ways to, uh, to get past them. And I think those analogs are out there. I think the models are out there. And I think they're increasingly out there. Whether in every case, uh, well, I'll, I'll take this back. I don't believe that, they, that this will be successful in every case. Uh, We've, we see a degree of obstinance and intransigence in our, in our government, in, uh, in, in social connection today that is, 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 is very disappointing to so many of us. And that percolates in the educational system as well. So when, uh, when I was at the D School at Stanford and David Kelly said to me, uh, David Kelly, the founder of the D School and author of Creative Confidence and founder of IDEO, uh, said to me, uh, Grant, you're so, you sound so optimistic about this. I said, let me, let me, let me be clear. Uh, 
I think there are probably 20% of educators in America who desperately want to get beyond the industrial model and get to a much more self-evolving, student-centered, uh, passion-focused, John Dewey sort of based uh, uh, type of, 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 of education because that's going to prepare our kids much better for their future. There are probably 80% right now to whom we might as well be speaking in a different language because they're so bound by the types of uh, difficult, uh, uh, conflicting, uh, powerful, political inertia that <clears throat> that you've described. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I guess I, I didn't mean to to uh, put you on any sort of a, a spot there because but but I think your your experience really lends itself to this idea of saying, you know, here here's a forest here here's a here's a brush fire of innovation and excellence and it's happening in the public system and we're seeing a change and uh, you know, how is it that that we take this brush fire and spread it uh, even in spite of or in, directly in the face of uh, this political intransigence. And I, I think that's the lesson. Yeah, and I, th I, think, I think the first lesson is, is that, we, that no one should be able to put their head down and say this is an unsolvable problem because the fact is there are districts and schools out there solving the problem. And some exactly. of those are districts and schools with uh, privileged populations and some are districts and schools with uh, vastly underserved populations. Uh, and so, uh, and they're all over the country. We, we can't put our head down and say it's not a problem. So now the question is, how do we go about uh, 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 taking advantage of, of what's out there, not reinventing the wheel, uh, collaborating, working together to overcome this inertia. You know, the thing that um, you said earlier about the 20 and 80 percent, what's interesting for me is this, uh, to me, that translates into this idea of it's going to come from the leaders. I mean, ultimately, and I talk a lot about leadership from the point of view of influence, but ultimately, the leaders, whether it represents for the head of school and their senior teams, the trustees, I think there is a minority, maybe it's 20 percent in higher ed, maybe I think even less, who are willing to take the risk to think differently about the business model. I think the same is probably true in, the, in when you're looking and talking to people. And the vast majority will respond only if there is a certain kind of urgency that threatens them in a way that they would have to make some significant change. And I think that's the nature of, of how most people respond is that there's a, there is, there is a, a small minority who are willing to have courage and willing to demonstrate taking risks. And then there's the majority of us who are waiting to be, in a sense, followers of others when it's safe to do. And, and it seems to me that the positive message is so important, Grant. You know, it's the, the idea that, and I was at Cornell the other day and I was talking to these leaders and I was telling them the story and about what you have to do is have a vision and talk about it as if it's already here. We did this exercise, and I asked them afterwards, did you start to notice a certain level of enthusiasm as a result of the conversation as they were looking at certain problems? And they said, yes. I said, and, and some people reflected, we do not do this. We spend all of our time focusing on how to solve a problem versus lift up a vision that we can get excited about. And to me, this is a muscle that most leaders, uh, and I'm not talking about presidents of heads of schools, but the leaders that have to execute in these institutions, most of them have not been practiced and have not put enough time in 
telling a positive story. And that, to me, is what you're bringing in. And when I hear you, it's like it can be done. Because the alternative is, is just to look inward and to just, you know, business as usual and only respond to negativity. So I, I can't emphasize enough my agreement with you that we have to find a way to get to empower others to be telling a positive story, even if they can't see the whole road, they can't see the end point. Um, and I'm curious if when you look at leaders, if you have that same experience where the vast majority uh, will only take a step if, it, if it's safe enough and there's a, a minority and those are the ones who are going to be successful, who are willing to take calculated risks and have a positive view of the future. Yeah, I think, it, uh, Howard, I think it speaks very closely to one of the central uh, set of findings in my book, and I'll try to tick this off in three uh, fairly uh, brief comments, uh, the, the, and with, with this preface. Uh, the reason I quit my uh, well-paying uh, uh, job with, a, with one school and went off on this trip and decided to go off in this direction was that I felt that the world had gotten to the point where we finally realized that this was an existential challenge and, and there were enough people out there ready to, to tackle it. On the one hand, we have uh, probably 500 years of knowledge base about how uh, organizations innovate and change. On the other hand, we have schools. Uh, folks who've been good innovation and change managers don't know a lot about how schools work, and school folks know a lot about uh, teaching students but don't know a lot about innovation and change. And so bridging that gap was a place that I felt that I could be uh, of, of, of help. Your comment about leadership and risk is spot on. Uh, uh, leaders, I think there are two main uh, elements about leadership that came out of the work. The first is that uh, leaders have to be able, willing and able to take a risk and model that uh, for what that looks like for the people in their organization or else the people in the organization won't take a risk. And that involves the second point, which is developing a system of uh, distributed leadership rather than strongly vertical hierarchical leadership where all the responsibility and uh, risk for the big decisions and the vision lies at the top. Uh, I think this is a uh, distributed leadership is, is certainly become widely respected as a major element of uh, uh, organizations that are, are innovative and especially innovative at a reasonable pace with respect to the outside environment. And both of those combined, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the leaders taking a risk and creating uh, more distributed leadership mechanisms where uh, faculty, uh, staff, students, parents all view themselves as having a leadership role, uh, lead to, will develop then uh, over time, and hopefully not too long a time, a what I've called a center of gravity. Uh, physics tells us that inertia uh, inertia will not uh, change uh, unless it is uh, opposed by a, a, an equal or larger force. And so what I've said is, is that we, uh, the, the greater we who are trying to uh, help transform education, are trying to create a center of gravity that's strong enough to allow others to recognize that best practices have changed, it's now safe, it's okay to, to change what we've done in the past. So I got a question for you as I, as I listen to you about this leadership conversation, and this is something I'm always asking in, in behind the scenes. You and I, you and I teach uh, leadership skills, leadership competencies. One of the underlying questions I'm always wondering as I look at a room full of people or I'm working with uh, a particular leader is can leadership be learned? 
And, you know, as I listen to you and I think about uh, what is the foundation for cl- clearly we can learn new skills and demonstrate uh, demonstrate skills to be able to do things more effectively. But ultimately, is this issue around 20 percent and 80 percent a function of the reality is there there is some fundamental skill set that if you don't have sort of a, a mindset around how to be in the world and who you see you are who, who you see you are in the world and and how and what you expect of yourself it does not matter how much you give them in terms of skills and competencies they're going to still operate from a different model and and to me it's it's like can you teach empathy well i can teach you what i see but can people learn the skills which you and I both see is missing for from a lot of people, while others we see they do it very naturally. So I'm curious, you know, and you working with different leaders, uh, do you have that? Because I go back and forth. There's times I say, you know what, we can teach the skills to change the behavior. And there's other times I say, you either have it or you don't. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, so uh, uh, the response that I got so frequently, almost every school I visited, and I think it's so common in education, is that the key, uh, the, the key mindset is, is growth, to, growth mindset. And we won't go into all that. I mean, Carol Dweck's book is so, has empowered so many educators uh, to understand what that means in a, in a school setting. If individuals have a growth mindset, are willing to not only understand but embrace that what they do tomorrow uh, likely needs to be in many ways different than what we did today or last year, then yes, absolutely, we can, they can acquire. I'm not even going to say we can teach because I don't see it as us teaching as much as uh, them just being exposed to the experience of what leadership looks like That's good. Uh, and that they will engage uh, that, they will become passionate about it, they will become leaders in whatever form that takes in their organization and they will be able to practice and exhibit those skills. So that's really the common element I see. I do, I, I've talked to uh, site leaders, principals, heads of school who said to me, they said, you know what Grant, uh, a growth mindset is now a job requirement to be a teacher or an administrator mm-hmm. at this school. If you do not have that, you cannot work at this school because we cannot stay where we were. What what the future is, we don't know exactly, but we're going to get there. We're going to work at it together. We're going to, I as the titular leader, am going to elevate these folks up around me uh, through distributed leadership mechanisms and responsibilities and expectations. Uh, so I need to hire and retain people who have a growth mindset. We start with that. Everything else is possible. Well, what I love about that is is the fact that what you're pointing to is something that you have a choice around. And some of us might have a growth mindset uh, naturally. It's just where we come from. We wake up every day with that perspective of wanting to sort of see how we're going to get better. And others who might be unaware of that that is the that is the way to move it in a direction and it's a choice and and the truth around choice is there's it's not like one's good and one's bad now i think on some level the the fear of losing relevancy points to the importance of a growth mindset but I think we have to be honest with ourselves given where we are whether we're going to embrace that or not and and so, for example, if we don't have the growth mindset, 
Let's not pretend that we do and do what we do well. And if we do have it, then embrace it entirely. It's like the thing you and I talked about, Pete, uh, at the Nukubo conference is that we, we talked to a leader, uh, Grant, and she was saying that after listening to this incredible talk, uh, Alison Levine talking about uh, climbing all the major peaks uh, around, uh, I think, around the world, and she was talking about you know, you got two choices in life. You're either gonna, you're, 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 it's gonna be about climbing the mountain or living a long life. And Allison's point was, you know, all of us think we can do both, but you can't do both exceptionally well. And it's not bad to live a long life. So don't pretend if your focus is about playing it safe and living a long life that you're really climbing a mountain. And if you're climbing, uh, climbing a mountain, uh, you might not, your focus might not be having a long life. And I love the simplicity of that kind of choice. I think the same thing applies to this idea of a growth mindset. We have to be honest with ourselves if we're willing to, t- to embrace that idea. And so I think the good news is, and you and I had this conversation a bit uh, a year and a half ago in Chicago, Howard, I think the good news with schools is, and one of the reasons that I think I'm, I'm optimistic and that people view my story as optimistic, is that schools are populated by pe- people who have a natural tendency toward optimism, toward uh, the future, toward doing the best thing for their kid. They want to do the right thing. The fact of the matter is that most adults in our educational system have been brought up within the industrial age model of education. They need to retool their skill set, but they actually want to do the right thing. And, and, and at, at, at their heart, at their core, many, many, many of them, I, th- I think a significant majority of, of educators actually have a growth mindset. And so then the, the question becomes relatively non-complex. I'm not going to say it's easy, but I don't think it's complicated. And that is first to paint the picture of what this transformed learning environment looks like. I hope to have contributed to that uh, in my book and others are doing great work in this area of spreading that, spreading that around. And then secondly, to give our uh, adults in the system the resources they need, and this is primarily time more than anything else, to actually undergo that tra- transformation. I think that in the, the schools that I visited, the vast majority of educators want to do this uh, if they are shown what it looks like and if they're given the resources and time to get there. And I'll tell you that uh, I think your message translates uh, directly to the higher ed industry, college, university market, where uh, the somehow we we have overcomplicated it. But as I listen to you tell the story, and it is complicated in a different way in that, you know, with the 4,000-degree granting institutions and breaking them down by the different kinds of public and private and large and small and denominational, there's a level of complexity that we have found ourselves in one breath trying to paint a one-picture size-fits-all business model reinterpretation, but in another breath, I think we need to take some of these simple ideas that you're talking about and translate it directly. I can tell you that the stories that K-12 through leaders are telling, and I remember hearing the flipped classroom idea and seeing it written about in K-12, through probably around, well, for me, it was probably five years ago, but it might have been even longer in terms of what you've seen. It is, we just did a podcast with the president of Nakubo, and he was talking about the flipped classroom. And I can tell you, I absolutely saw the lag between 
the story beginning in the, in the K through 12 and feeding the higher ed market. So, you know, one of the things that I, I recognized is that the K through 12 transformation has a direct impact on what the higher education uh, academic experience is going to look like. And that's another reason for, for K through 12 to embrace this even more because they are having a very direct impact on the kinds of ways higher ed is thinking about re, reinterpreting itself. And yet, and yet uh, almost universally, uh, if you visit K-12 schools and ask them why they are not going to this more uh, transformational model, that's th where they want to go. They want they want learning to be much more student-centered, student-owned, uh, theme-based, cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, breaking the uses of time, the boundaries of subject, all of that. The, the K-12 educators want to go there, and you say, why aren't we doing it? Well, we can do it in the lower school. We can do it in the middle school. When we get to the high school, then we're facing college admissions, college uh, entrance That's examinations, right. and that sort of thing. And there's this big, huge external dam. And so they blame the colleges. At the same time, the colleges, if you, at least if you talk to college presidents and college admissions directors, they say, no, 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 of course we want these kids to come right. up being marvelously creative and communicative and collaborative and all this. Uh, and so we have this hardwired false choice built into the system mm. that really is the core of the inertia that's, that's holding us back. And that false choice is that uh, we either have to uh, learn content and be very good at passing standardized tests, or we have to uh, uh, expose kids to the sort of skills they need for their future in the 21st century. And it is a false choice. Educators know it's a false choice. They know that, in fact, students will learn the content better if they do it in an experiential, project-based, collaborative sort of environment. Uh, and that's the sort of nature of the transformation that we're seeing. Some are willing to do it. Others are afraid uh, uh, to do it too, too soon. Then, of course, we have the large political pressures uh, that, that, that hold us back. Yeah, and I think that it's getting to a convergence. I mean, in some ways, when you point that picture, I think K-12 is having, uh, producing that kind of influence where higher ed has to look at itself and say, are we willing to rethink our whole admissions process and our academic delivery in a way that fee that we can accept the students who are coming in as innovators, who are coming in with a different way of thinking about learning? It is slowly happening, um, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a convergence, uh, but but the links between the two are so key, and that that's the thing I want to see more of. Grant is that there's a recognition and and actual ways that higher ed and K through 12 leaders are coming together, not just among themselves across you know their different types of institutions, but seeing how they can learn from each other, and you know maybe that's the next frontier that's going to help break down. Uh, that intransigence uh, in terms of the the academic model at the higher ed level. You know what I think you 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 get to a, a terrific point, and I think it, it leads to a, a conversation that could go on much much longer. And I hope Grant Lickman that you will uh, agree to join us again uh, as uh, to continue this dialogue because it really is uh, it, it's rich and um, uh, the results of your work have uh, are really terrific. Can't wait to see this book on the shelves. Well, I appreciate you having me. Obviously, uh, happy to. to to chat with you all uh, whenever uh, you're free and uh, look forward to carrying on the conversation. 
Everybody, thank you for listening to this conversation. We absolutely encourage you to go out and look for Ed Journey, a roadmap to the future of education. It ships September 2nd, but it is available uh, to pre-order now at Finer booksellers. You can find out more about this show at tybalink.com and subscribe for free to the podcast. Just search for us in iTunes. You can subscribe there. Uh, or for more information on subscription options, head over to our site, tybalink.com. Reach out to us on Twitter. You can find Howard at Howard Tybal, me at Pete Wright, and our guest, Grant Lichtman at Grant Lichtman. G-R-A-N-T-L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N. We'd like to hear your thoughts on the future of education, and of course, we appreciate it if you share this episode with your friends and colleagues. On behalf of Grant Lickman and Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel, Inc. Mm-hmm.